Amen. What a reminder that we live in a world that is filled with falsehood. Jesus said that those who follow the devil follow the father of lies, who when he lies speaks out of that which is within him. But the ninth commandment calls us to a different way, to a better way that reflects the image of the God who is truth. So we're going to look together in particular at Lord's Day 43. You can find that if you have a Psalter hymnal at home on page 55 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. But first I'd like to read with you two brief passages. First, from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 11 through 17. And then we're going to look together at Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 32. First from Leviticus chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. Moses writes this, You shall not steal nor deal deal falsely, nor lie to one another. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. Nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Amen. Looking then at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 22. Actually, we're going to begin in verse 20. The apostle writes, You have not so learned Christ, that is, to walk in the way of the Gentiles, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, Anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Now, summarizing that word as it relates to the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. Our catechism asks, what is God's will for us in this ninth commandment? The answer is God's will is that I never give false testimony against anyone. Twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone without a hearing or without just cause. Rather, 
in court and everywhere else. I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are the devices the devil himself uses, and they would call down on me God's intense anger. I should love the truth, speak it candidly and openly acknowledge it, and I should do what I can, what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. Amen. Brothers and sisters beloved of our Lord, it's interesting how often we summarize God's Word rather than quoting it directly or memorizing it in all of its details. Perhaps it's a, a byproduct of our soundbite society, but we tend to reduce everything to its simplest form. We do it with the fall of man, don't we? What happened in Eden? Ask most people, what happened in the Garden of Eden? And they'll say, well, Adam ate the forbidden fruit, that was a sin, and so God punished everyone. Well, that's true, but it leaves out all of the details that make it make sense, doesn't it? In fact, God put Adam in the midst of great blessedness, and He gave him a test commandment that would demonstrate whether he was resolved to follow the Lord or not. There was temptation through the serpent. There was assistance in that temptation by Eve. There was Adam abdicating his role as the great king who was to protect his wife. And then Adam followed after his wife, doing so in his office as the father of mankind, as our covenant head. The whole thing is far more complex than our simple summary about forbidden fruit. But we simplify it, maybe to make it easier to deal with. Maybe because we don't have the patience to really wrestle with the reality. And we do the same thing sometimes when it comes to God's law. Some of the commandments are so simple at the start that, that it's hard to make them any simpler. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. That's straightforward. But what about the ninth commandment? Most times, if you ask a child in the church, what does God say in the ninth commandment? They'll summarize it by saying, don't lie. I've heard that so many times. Don't lie. I've seen it in, in uh, children's storybooks, teaching purportedly the lessons of Scripture. What are the, the commandments? You shall not kill, they'll say. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. But that's not what it says, is it? It says you shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. Now that certainly involves our calling to speak the truth. And we'll see that in a bit. But truth-telling is an application of the commandment, not a statement of the commandment itself. In fact, do not lie or tell the truth isn't even the main focus of the commandment. Instead, as our catechism reminds us, in the ninth commandment, God's grateful people learn to prize their neighbor's name. That's the focus of the commandment. That's the heart and the essence of it. God's grateful people prize their neighbor's good name. And why is that so very important? Well, the name represents the person who bears it. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses His name. He's emphatic about the reality, the importance of His name. And why? Because when we misuse the name of God, when we scorn the name of God, it is the essence and the reality of God Himself that we're scorning. 
And likewise, when we mistreat the name of someone, we're mistreating the not just not just hitting him, not just abusing his flesh, but we're abusing the reality of who he is in his inmost parts. That's important. If my name is slandered, it is I who bear the offense. If I commit shameful acts, it is my name which will be defiled. That's why Proverbs 22 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And so it's important to guard the name of those who are innocent. If people level false charges against someone who didn't do it, that person's name will be unrighteously, unfairly, Attached to that allegation. Hearing that man's name years down the road, they'll think about that charge, which was false all along. But they will impute, they will count that person guilty, even though he wasn't. Nowhere is this more true than in the court of law. In the court of law, a man's public reputation, his name, is formally on the line. And the court depends upon true testimony to ensure that evil men are publicly shamed and punished, and that the innocent are cleared of charges of wrongdoing. When the courts work that way, they are a tool in applying the very justice of God. They are a tool in upholding the righteousness of those who strive to be righteous and protecting those who are godly and those who are good from those who do evil. But, when lies are introduced into the courtroom, when the guilty are cleared of wrongdoing, but the innocent are convicted, then no man's good name is safe. And society invariably becomes unjust and corrupt. So God gave this ninth commandment, calling His people to preserve justice for their neighbor's name. That's the original context of this ninth commandment, the courtroom. When we testify regarding a man or woman on trial... We must, first of all, refuse to speak unjustly. And that's our first point. We refuse to speak unjustly. This is the most direct application of the command. In court, God wants our testimony to be trustworthy and true. He emphasizes that often in Scripture. We just read in Leviticus 19, where he says, verse 12, we must not swear falsely. Verse 15, we must not pervert justice. Verse 16, we must not endanger our neighbor's life, which we would do by testifying falsely against him. God speaks similarly in Exodus 23. He says, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. And then God says something interesting. In verses 2 and 3, he says, we shall not pervert justice. By favoring the poor in court. But then in verses uh, 6 and 7, he says, We shall not deny justice against the poor person. You see, God knows that we are sometimes tempted to manipulate justice. Some folks see the poor and they're so overcome with pity for them. They want the underdog to win. They want to give an edge to the poor. And so they're willing to bend the truth. They're willing to, to shade their testimony a bit so that the poor person has a bit more of an edge. And other people, they see the poor person as an opportunity to be exploited. And so they'll take that poor person to court and use the courtroom, use the, the justice system in an unjust way so as to take what little that poor person has. And our Lord wants us to fall to neither side. 
Instead, He wants us to love, to cherish, and to tell the truth always. Allowing the name of the evil person to be plastered with the evil that he has done. But preserving the name of the righteous man, the innocent one. This must be our goal always. Whether the defendant is rich or poor, regardless of what we hear from society, from our friends, from our business associates, we are to so value our neighbor's name that we refuse to speak unjustly about him. Now, as I said, the specific, the the original context of the Ninth Commandment is the courtroom. But it's not limited to that. The principles of the Ninth Commandment extend throughout life. Lord's Day 43 says that along with prohibiting false testimony, it teaches us to twist no one's words. In other words, it's not okay to simply report a small part of what is said so as to make it seem like something else was said or something else was done. For example, Billy might come home from school and he doesn't much like his teacher. Teacher gives way too much homework. Runs far too tight a ship. So he comes home and he says, guess what? My teacher said that reformed Christians are like Amish people. And at the very least, they're confused. Maybe they're a bit offended. They don't know what to think about it. Until they hear what Billy's teacher actually said. That she said, reformed people have a view of the faith that is so comprehensive that it leads them to affect every part of life, just like the Amish do. And suddenly... Billy's teacher's remarks make a lot more sense. But you see, he twisted her words, took just a tiny part. We see that oftentimes in in high school and college drama. A troublemaker might tell Sally that, you know, Sally's boyfriend said that Becky's really pretty. And Sally might be, at the very least, confused, perhaps a bit concerned about her relationship with her boyfriend. But, But what if Sally's boyfriend was just speaking with a friend who wants to ask Becky out. He says, what do you think of her? And he says, you know, she's pretty. He's just supporting his friend. He's not trying to cheat on Sally. He's not allowing his eyes to wander. But because the the words were twisted, because the context was left out, suddenly Sally's boyfriend is put in a difficult position. When we twist someone's words, we set aside the truth for our own agenda. And so we must not... We must not twist words. We must not gossip or slander. God says in Leviticus 19, you shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. Kids, do you know what, what that means to be a talebearer? It means that, that we're not to go around talking about the bad things that we think other people are doing. Just because you think a classmate of yours is unkind doesn't mean that you have to go tell other people that he's an unkind person. Or if two friends get in an argument, there's no need for everyone else to know about the argument they had. The Lord says we're not to be talebearers, we're not to spread slander. If your neighbor has offended you, we'll go talk to him about it. Tell him what he did to offend you. Give him an opportunity either to explain himself or to repent and ask your forgiveness. Don't instead go and tell everybody else what he's done without ever talking to him. In fact, even if you talk to him, oh, this happens so often, you talk to him, you tell him why you're offended, and he says, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to be that offensive, and you say, don't worry about it. But then, then you go, you've just implicitly forgiven him. But now you go and you tell everybody else, you're not going to believe what he said to me, what he did to me, how he offended me. 
But you see, forgiveness is a promise, isn't it? Forgiveness is a promise that God makes to us that He will not treat us according to the sin that we committed, which He has forgiven. And that's the kind of promise we make to others when we forgive them. We're saying, I will not raise that that you have done with you or with others or with God. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna act as though it never happened. I know it happened. I remember it happened. But I'm going to do my best not to tell others about it because I have forgiven you. I have said it as far as east is from the west, just like God did with my sin. But when we go about and we tell others what happened, we've not forgiven. And even if they've not repented, when we go about slandering them that way, we have all but ensured that reconciliation will never happen because now we've dragged their name through the mud. So we must not slander. We must not gossip or be talebearers. We must not twist anyone's words. And there's one other thing that we're called specifically to avoid doing in this ninth commandment. Lord's Day 43 says we, we must not join in condemning anyone without a hearing or without a just cause. I hate to say it, but this is common in the church at large. But it's subtle. Someone says some, somebody has done something wrong, often something vague. You know, that, that professor has turned really liberal. Or, you know, that woman, I don't, I don't think she's very trustworthy. Or, you know, I'm pretty sure that guy's cheating on his wife. And the common response, the common response is for the hearer to say nothing. But to shake his head, just look disapproving. But understand what that response is. That response is an implicit justification of the slander that you've just heard. It's an implicit approval of the talebearer's act. Why? Why would you be silent? Well, it's because you don't want to be the next one on the chopping block. You don't want to be the next one whose name is dragged through the mud. But what you ought to be doing, and we'll come back to this, but what you ought to be doing is confronting the one who's bringing that and asking, why are you telling me this? And by what evidence are you dragging my neighbor's name through the mud? By simply accepting the allegation, much less by passing it on, just simply accepting it. We're joining in condemning our neighbor without cause. And the Lord says we must not. Deuteronomy 19 says we must require proof from multiple witnesses before condemning anyone for their alleged sin. Otherwise, we're doing the opposite of protecting their name. God calls us to refuse to speak unjustly concerning our neighbor. That means in court, in a formal legal setting, we must never give false testimony. But also out of court, we must not twist people's words, making someone sound worse than they are. We must not gossip about our neighbor or slander their name. And we mustn't join in. We mustn't implicitly accept the condemnation leveled by others without proof. All of these actions are hurtful to the name of my neighbor and must be rejected. But then the Lord calls us to take it a step further. Not only refusing to speak in an unjust way, but rejecting the root of that unjust speech. You see, each of the sins forbidden in God's law is rooted in the sin of the heart. Jesus said in Mark 7, it's what arises from within that defiles a man. 
And so the sinful action of stealing is rooted in the sinful attitude of greed. The sinful action of adultery is rooted in the sinful attitude of lust. And likewise, bearing the, the false, bearing false witness against my neighbor's name. It's rooted in sinful attitudes of the heart and we're called to, to uproot and cast those aside. Our catechism points out two particular roots and that's lying and deceit. We're not talking about the actions of lying and deceit. We're talking about the attitudes, the motivations of lying and deceit. Lying is simply the embracing and the, the disseminating of falsehood, conveying to others what is not true. It would be a lie for me to say that today is December 19, or that my name is David Barnes, or that I have a doctorate in botanical science. None of those things is true. They're lies. And lies are almost always wrong. Notice I said almost. There are rare occasions when it's acceptable to lie, but that's so very rare. Kids, I want you to remember that. It's almost never okay to lie. The only two examples that I can think of offhand in the Bible are the midwives in Egypt and Rahab. The midwives, you remember Pharaoh commanded them to cast the little baby boys born of the Israelites into the river Nile. But the Israelites kept having baby boys and they kept surviving. So he came to the midwives and said, aren't you doing what I told you to do? And they said, well, the, the women are vigorous. They're having the kids before we get there. We can't do a thing. That was a lie. But Exodus 1 verse 20 says that God blessed them and gave them families of their own for this action that preserved the lives of the children. Rahab, likewise, she, you will recall, was a resident of Jericho. And she gave shelter to the two spies who came to, to do recon in the land. When the king came and asked her where these spies who had lodged with her went, she lied. She said they left. She pointed the king in, in a direction outside the city walls and said, go get them. But in fact, they were still up on her roof, hidden. And because she gave shelter to those spies and sent their pursuers off with false information, James 2 verse 25 says, Rahab was considered by God to be righteous. Now what was it that made those lies acceptable? They were the only legitimate way to protect someone else from unjust harm. The Dutch in World War II who lied to the Nazis about the Jews hidden in their house, who said, there are no Jews here, we don't have any Jews here, I don't know what you're talking about. They were engaging in a just lie, because they were protecting their neighbor from unjust harm. But such cases are exceptionally rare. In most cases, lying is simply wrong. That's why God says in Leviticus 19.11, you shall not lie to one another. But he also says there, you shall not deceive. Or, I'm sorry, you shall not deal falsely. That, and that's deceiving. It's closely related. Deceiving is closely related to lying, but it's more broad. Deceit involves trying to convince someone of something that is untrue. You see, our hearts are terribly crafty. We're good at justifying to ourselves our sins. And so if we can manage to use the truth in order to convince someone of something that's wrong, we can ease our conscience by saying, well, I didn't say anything that was a lie. But you see, God says it's still deceit. We're dealing falsely with our neighbor. And that's still the root of this violation of the ninth commandment. 
If God forbade only lying and not also dealing falsely, we would find ways to deceive others, even using the truth. Think of the, the uh, early church father, Athanasius. Athanasius was a, a famous bishop who was steadfast concerning the truth of God's word, which meant in that tumultuous time that he was often at odds with the leaders of the kingdom, of the empire. And Athanasius, he believed that it was never okay to lie. But that almost caught him in a bit of trouble. One time he's out of favor with the government. He was out and about traveling from place to place and he came upon some soldiers. And those soldiers, clearly not having the digital technology we have today, asked him if he knew of a man named Athanasius and if he had seen him. And Athanasius did not lie. He said, yes, he's nearby. If you look, I'm sure you can find him. And the soldiers ran off eager to scour the the highways and the byways for this man who was supposedly nearby. You see, Athanasius did not lie to the soldiers, but he did deceive them with the truth. Deceiving can be done even with the truth, and God generally forbids also this as part of the root of unjust speech. Now, of course, Athanasius did not sin in that. He was acting uprightly, but the implication is evident. We can easily use the truth to cover over the real truth. We heard the counsel of Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. As Christians, we should be putting away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Because lying is the province of the devil. In John 8... Jesus said that when Satan lies, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. And therefore, Proverbs 12, verse 22, tells us lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. He hates lying lips. They're an abomination because he detests their rebellious origin, which is a a twisting of the image that we were meant to bear. Having delivered us from Satan... And from the desire to serve Him, Christ calls us to reject the very root of unjust speech. So He calls us to reject that desire of sinful hearts to lie and to deceive. Our God is the God of truth. And He wants us to reflect His love of the truth. That's part of our calling as bearers of God's image. Because He is always truthful. Because He delights in the truth. He wants us to delight in the truth. After all, justice always rests on truth. What is justice in the court of law? Is justice not that which happens when the jury determines what is true? Is it not just when the jury finds the guilty truly guilty? Or when they recognize the innocence of the innocent and render them not guilty? Justice is finding out and applying the truth. But without truth, justice will invariably be perverted. The guilty will not be held accountable. The innocent will be railroaded into suffering for that which they've not done. And if we bear the image of God and we love His just character, then we will love justice and hate injustice. And therefore, we must reject the root of unjust speech. So that's what we're to put off. We're to refuse to speak unjustly. We're to reject the root of unjust speech. But there's also a positive side. We're to put off that which belongs to the old nature, but being renewed in the mind to put on that which reflects Christ. 
And that means finally we must resolve to seek justice. And that's our final point. Even as our unjust inclinations start at the root, deep within us, so also our desire for justice must begin within. We're called, first of all, to love the truth. Proverbs 12, I said, declares lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. The second half of that verse says, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. He delights in those who are truthful. Those who love truth, because that is a reflection of His image in them. John 1 verse 14 says that Jesus is the one who is full of grace and truth. And Paul tells us that true love, the love expressed by God's people, is a love, 1 Corinthians 13, that does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It is through the truth that we are saved, and by the truth that we reflect God to the world. So if we then are to learn to love the truth, we must be exposed to the truth. You can't love what you don't know, right? Children, you love your friends, right? And how did you come to to love them? Wasn't it by spending time with them, by getting to know them? And slowly you, you began to be affectionate toward them. You began to appreciate them. You began ultimately to love them, but only as you spent time with them. You who are married... How did you come to love your spouse? First, you met them. You spoke with them. You spent time with them. You got to know them. And ultimately, that blossomed into love. If we would love the truth, we must spend time with the truth. And that means we must spend much time in God's Word. This, above all else, exposes us to God's truth. We must know and love the Word of God. We must soak in God's Word every single day. It must be a constant in our life. You wouldn't go through the day... Without anything to drink. Without anything to eat. You wouldn't decide, you know, today I think it's too much bother to breathe. Of course not. You need that. And so we need exposure to the truth. It's that important. We must spend time daily. Not just reading quickly over a brief passage and setting it aside so we can cross it off the list. But soaking in that word. Reading a portion that's big enough to give us the context, the understanding. But small enough... That we can meditate on it throughout the day. And then having taken in God's word, which is the truth. We must spend time with God whom that word reveals. He is truth and the source of all truth. So we need to pray to him. We need to seek his guidance. We need to share our day with him through constant prayer. And we must seek the truth of his world. Because when we study science and mathematics, when we study literature and history, when we study the things of this world, if we're studying them faithfully, if we're seeing the truth of them, we're going to see a reflection of God and his works. We must cultivate a love for truth if we would truly seek justice. And then having developed a love for truth, And notice, when you develop a love for the truth, you develop an intolerance for that which is not true. Right? When you develop a love for the truth, you develop an intolerance for that which is not true. And so Paul says in our scripture reading from Ephesians 4, putting away lying, instead let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. The more we begin to love truth, the more we will speak truth toward our neighbor. Now, we need to be careful there. 
especially in our churches, we tend to be a bit blunt. We are to speak the truth to our neighbor, but we're to speak it in a way that is loving. In other words, in a way that is how we would want to be spoken to. And so the Lord says in, through Paul in verse 29, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, building up, that it may impart grace to the hearers. In other words, don't just call a spade a spade. It's always the other person's spade they're talking about, isn't it? But speak to them the truth in the way that you would want it spoken to you, in the way that will build them up and strengthen them and encourage them. And when you have to rebuke your neighbor, do it in love, as one who likewise deserves many rebukes. But speak the truth to your neighbor, because unless you speak the truth, offense will grow, division will deepen. You won't be able to cultivate that unity of relationship to which we are called, especially within the family of God. God says in Leviticus 19, we must not allow sins and offense to lead us to hatred. Instead, we need to speak the truth and seek justice in love. That means when your neighbor offends you, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. As we do that, as we speak the truth lovingly to our neighbor, what's it do? It reveals the division that's already there, but it seeks to heal it. Like a doctor looking at a wound. And instead of ignoring it or just covering it up, that's what we do when we refuse to speak the truth. He takes some saline and he washes it out. He might even have to scrub it, which can hurt at the time. But he does that to get the dirt and the bacteria out and he he washes it perhaps with some peroxide or some other antiseptic. And then having cleansed it, having exposed it, Now he can begin to apply the salve that will heal it. And so when we speak the truth to our neighbor, we open up the wound. It hurts. But if we do so in love, we're removing the dirt and the grit and the stuff that's going to cause an infection, that's going to separate us and embitter us. And having lovingly opened it up, we're able to promote healing. Now we can't force healing. They might be offended at us. They might refuse. But we can promote the truth. Seeking that which is just and upright. Along with speaking the truth, we need to acknowledge the truth. That means that when someone comes and rebukes me, I need to not just be offended, that they would dare point out my flaws, not lie and say that I didn't do what they allege. But when someone corrects me, I need to humble myself and evaluate, are they speaking the truth? If they're not, if they just need a clarification about what really was said or done, we'll do that. But if they're speaking the truth, then humbly acknowledge that truth. Recognize that their rebuke was hard to give and that it ultimately is a gift from God. And then ask for their help. Ask for their help that you might repent, that you might cultivate that relationship that has been fractured. That's hard. It hurts our pride to admit that we're wrong. It makes us feel like a failure to confess that we've sinned against someone. But if we truly desire God's justice, if we truly cherish the truth, then we must confess the truth that is spoken about us. Now, all of this has been working us back from the root to the specific application. Remember, the original context of the ninth commandment is the courtroom. 
And that's where our catechism finally leads us, back to guarding and advancing my neighbor's good name, also in court. Now, we don't like to get involved in that kind of stuff. It's messy when you get in court. You get lawyers involved. You, you have to take time out of your day, out of your work, out of your family. You, you anger people. But God calls us to so love our neighbor and to so cherish the truth that lies at the heart of his image that we're willing to seek justice for our neighbor even if it means going to court to uphold his good name. If you know that your neighbor is on trial and he's innocent, you need to tell what you know. You need to seek justice on his behalf, even if it costs you time, even if it costs you friends. But you know, that's not too often, is it? That's pretty rare. What's more likely is, again, that scenario when someone comes up to you and says, did you hear about Bill? Oh, he's gotten liberal. Oh, did you hear about Jan? Oh, wow, what she did. Did you hear about whoever? And they come up to you with these allegations. This one is, is untrustworthy. That one is unfaithful. This other one committed some great offense. Hearing that, rather than, than nodding and shaking our heads sympathetically, rather than justifying their tail-bearing, we need to stop them and say, wait, how do you know that he did that? What evidence do you have? Did you see it? Did you hear it? Do you know it for a fact? What proof is there? Are there witnesses with whom we can speak? Are they reliable? And why are you telling me? For what reason is my name, my neighbor's name being dragged through the mud? We need to ask that. And you know what? They're going to get upset when we ask that. Because simply asking the questions is an implicit rebuke, isn't it? But they are bringing low the name of our neighbor. And if we truly love that neighbor... Well, then we need to protect their name from that which is unjust. And if we truly love the one who's speaking, we need to hold them accountable. Maybe they do have the evidence. And in that case, then we can direct them to a biblical way of addressing it. Talking about Matthew 18 and the way that they can, can bring that to this individual and seek reconciliation rather than just slandering them throughout the community. But if it's wrong, if it's a lie, if it's something that they don't know the truth of, then we can direct them to repentance and to apologizing to that individual and to seeking to uphold the truth rather than the lie. Folks won't like it. They'll tell us to take it easy. Say, it's not such a big deal. Why are you getting so bent out of shape about this? But remember, if somebody was slandering you, if it was your name being dragged through the mud without justification or cause, you would want someone to stand up for you. And remember too, that's what Jesus does for us. When Satan, whose name means slanderer, stands before the throne of God and says, Look at his sins. Look at her unrighteousness. This one is not worthy of you. And Jesus stands up and says, I've already paid that debt. And Satan, you're a liar. This one is worthy of God because he bears the righteousness of Christ. That's what Jesus does for us. And reflecting His love of the truth and His love of justice and His love for our neighbor, we must do likewise for others. God's grateful people prize their neighbor's name. That's hard. Because defending their name can cost us much. But let us never forget the unthinkable price that God paid in Christ to make us worthy of His name. 
And remembering that, let us love the truth and seek justice and let us truly prize our neighbor's name, both in word and in deed. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we confess that the lie comes easy to us and the truth comes so very hard. But we know that you are the God who loves, who delights in truth. And we pray that you would make us to delight in the truth as well. Make us to be faithful bearers of your image. And we ask, Lord, that as you do so, you would cause us to cultivate in one another a love for your truth. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.